Good morning. That Thanksgiving time was wonderful. That was wonderful. We've had a great couple weeks, haven't we? I was out of town last week. I married off my brother, but I heard it was a wonderful capper to Missions Week. Um, great job. Thanks to the GO team for their hard work in putting that together and our missionaries for all the amazing work they do day in and day out. Um, so that's where we spent the last couple weeks. Next week, we start our Advent series, which will be a wonderful time to focus each week on going beyond the surface of Christmas, beyond the decorations to capture the meaning and the joy of Messiah. But this week we're back in Romans, and I'd say dipping our toes in, but you can't really dip your toes in Roman. You've got to kind of cannonball in because it's, it's always serious business. And it's Cultivating Growth is our series, and Romans is such a rich book, um, and it's really a great resource for the foundations of our faith. Uh, just a quick review of us will remind us of some really powerful truths. If we think through the first couple chapters, it really emphasizes in almost a, a really depressing way how we're lost how we are born separated from God and we have no hope on our own and it's not just this group or that group, it's everybody who's in big trouble. And then God, though, sends his son, Jesus, to take our punishment on our, in our place um, at the cross and that we receive this gift by faith and it's a faith that gives ourselves, we, where we give ourselves fully to God and we see that in the life of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. And if you want the long version, it's uh, Genesis 12 and, and several chapters thereafter. And this faith results in access to God and it results in union with Christ and so many beautiful things. And it's because God's so good, not because we are. And so, so far through Romans, it's been this beautiful, really one-sided exchange. So now what? Now you may have a friend or a sibling or someone you know. I have a child, three of them, um, who seem like they're on the fast track of being high-stakes negotiators. You know what I mean? Not all the time, but more often than I'd like around bedtime or something like that, I'd say, hey, it's time to go to bed. And then the negotiations begin. Five more minutes. Can I finish this chapter I'm working on? Um, can I have a drink of water? Um, can I see if this guy from Oregon's going to make this field goal or not? That, actually, that was, that was me. That was me. <clears throat> Sorry. You know, but you get the idea. Well, my poor parenting aside, we all know someone who's looking for the loophole, Right? That's what we're dealing with in Romans 6. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans 6. If you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring one with you, raise your hand. The, elders, or the, uh, the ushers will be happy to bring one to you and loan one to you. Um, leave that on your seat when you leave. If you don't own a Bible, be sure to go to the Information Center, and if you read it, you can have it. And we would give that to you, a gift Bible there. Um, Romans is in the New Testament, about three-quarters of the way through your Bible, and then in the New Testament, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. I said that really fast. You can also go to your table of contents, and it'll get you there too. And what we've seen so far in Romans is the amazing blessings of God. But now Paul's dealing with some objections that are sure to come. Specifically, if all this good stuff comes by faith, why be good? What's the point of me being good if I get all these wonderful things just for believing and, and if I'm honest, being bad seems like a lot more fun. And any, isn't God just going to forgive me anyways? I'm sure you've never asked that question yourself, but I'm sure you have friends who have, right? So our, our series here is on cultivating growth, and this question just puts a bullseye on us and, and, and really just dials us into the real question of, do you want to grow? Because this is really a question of will that we're looking at today. Do you really want it? If, if it's all free, then why not keep on sinning? Why try? 
In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That was the question Pastor Mike answered a couple weeks ago, and that, he answered the first part. We're going to answer the second part of that this week as, as he took the first half of Romans 6. So the question's out there. Why be good? Well, what's the answer? The first one is you have a new life. That's the gist of the first 11 verses that Mike covered, but we're getting into that a little bit at the beginning of our passage, so I want to do a little review the gist of those first 11 verses is that we are united to Christ in faith. That means we've died with him and we're risen to new life in Christ. So we need to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Uh, John Stott's a great um, pastor theologian who just went to be with the Lord within the last couple months, and he had a couple helpful illustrations of what that looks like. Think of your life as a biography, a two-volume biography. If you're in Christ, then volume two begins with your commitment to Christ. So right here on page one of volume two is, this is when I prayed to receive Christ in my mother's bedroom on a Sunday evening, November of, I don't remember when the year, I'm on the spot, um, but, <laughs> but November of 1990. Um, so that was when my volume two starts. And so he's saying in this biography, what Paul's saying is, hey, you live, you are united with Christ, you have started the second volume of your biography with God. Why in the world would you go back to volume one as if volume two never happened? Because you have a new life. This is where you're living, not here. So that's the, that's the first thing, is that we have a new life. I'm not sure this is going to work, but I'm going to try it. There we go. So the first thing, why we don't do that, is you have a new life. Another example is it think of someone who's married? Easy, Kellen and Carolyn. Um, can, can they act now as if they were still single? I mean, I suppose they could, but, <laughs> but it becomes a lot more difficult. It, it becomes very difficult. When you remember who you are, you feel the ring on your finger. You have this person living with you now. You recall the life of your union. You have a new kind of life. You're not the person you were before. We do baptism. We Immerse with water, and the next one's scheduled in January. If you haven't yet been baptized, fill out a little card, and we would love to, you to be part of that. Fill out a card so we have your info. We'll get hold of you. But this baptism, it isn't magical. It's, it's symbolic. It's symbolic of what God has done in our lives, that we've died to our old way of living, and we've been resurrected to new life in Christ. It's, it's kind of God's idea of a wedding ring that shows what God has done in our lives and a marker for us to stand as a reminder that we're a new creation in him. So the logic is you have a new life. Live like it. And that's, that's what the text goes through, um, verse 11, and we'll pick it up in verse 12. Actually, verse 11 says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what we've been talking about. Then verse 12 is, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Our mortal bodies, they're experts in sinning. I mean, we are born to sin. That's what we do best. Our physical, our emotional, our wiring is such that it is wired in opposition to God. And so when we're given new life, God changes us in the core of who we are, but we also need to train these members and all of our faculties to live in God's way because they've got ingrained, built-in habits of sin. That's just the default setting for us. And so this is what it means to present our members to God. Our members are our physical bodies, our mental faculties, all that kind of stuff. And we say, God, I know I'm a new person, that you brought me from death to life, but now I'm giving you all of me. I'm giving you all these parts of me to turn, the, turn me wholly into the person you want me to be. 
and I need you to train these parts of my body and my mind as instruments for righteousness, righteousness instead of instruments for sin. And so there's a decisive statement here saying, saying that my body or my mind is not made for this. It's not made for slander or adultery or greed or gossip. Instead, it's made for this, for serving and loving and ministering and encouraging others. That's, this is why we don't just grow from out of nowhere. We need to cultivate growth. That's why we've called our series Cultivating Growth. And that's what Paul's speaking about here is that when we cultivate growth, we're doing our part of offering ourselves up to God and saying, God, I'm giving myself to you so that you can change me. We'll, we'll develop this a little more down the line. Um, as we keep working through here, the section closes with verse 14. For sin shall not be your master. Um, each week I study, and there's always something that surprises me, and this is the one that surprised me this time, because this sounds like a command. Hey, sin won't be your master. Get to work. Um, and, and there's certainly an aspect to that that we'll get to, but this is not what it's saying here. This is a hugely encouraging phrase here, because this isn't a command. This isn't something that you have to do, at least in, in this reference right here. It's that God is working in the life of someone who's made new in Christ, and this is a word of encouragement. Sin will not dominate you. It's a statement of fact, not a statement of what you need to do. You won't be overwhelmed by sin. God's at work. He may have to knock you down. He may have to put you in timeout. He may have to do a lot of things to get through to his kids, but he will get through to his children, and he will see you through. Sin will not drown you. And why won't it drown us? Why won't it have dominion over us? And it's because of God's grace. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Now, grace seems to fly in from nowhere here. But um, the idea is that the law burdens them, and, and they're trying to do it on their own, not realizing that they, when they receive God's grace, they have been set free by faith. So the, the idea here, the link is, is that we live in God's grace, and in that grace we find freedom. So this is just a quick flyover over the first half of, of Romans 6, but the point is clear. Why be good? Why not give yourself to sin? Simply put, you are not the person you used to be. Period. So don't go back to the previous volume of your life because you don't live there anymore. Why are you going there? Don't function in the old ways, but live in the new. Give yourself to God and let him change you. Let's keep going because this is only half the chapter. Why else should we be good? And it's not just us asking again. It's Paul's imaginary debate opponents that he's using rhetorically here. It says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. So what's the answer? Should we keep sinning? No. Of course not. No way. But why? And here's the second one, and I don't really like this one that much, but we'll get to that in a minute. You're a slave. Does anyone like that? I don't like that. I mean, the word's an ugly word. You think of trafficking that goes on all around the world. You think of our nations and many nations' history. It is a shameful word, a shameful institution. But there it is in the text. Verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are sla <coughs> slaves to sin, which leads to righteousness, or sin, to, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. It's there, so we better grapple with it. There's a couple words here that pop that will bring some cultural insight, I think, that will set us apart from the racially-based, tribally-based slavery that comes to the forefront of our minds. 
It says, offer yourself as obedient slaves. Or something like that, depending on your translation. That doesn't make sense. Who's going to offer themselves to be a slave? Well, culturally, it actually does make sense because it was relatively common in the ancient world. If you, say, had a massive debt, you would sell yourself into a wealthy family to be their slave so it would save you and your family. So what we need to do when we're talking about slavery in this context, we need to take the racially-based aspect out of it because that's not what it was like at this time in the ancient world, at least in in the, the biblical world. But we need to keep the fact that you are not your own when you're a slave. That you're saying you, you could be very gifted and you could be running the house as a slave or you could be doing the most wretched, demeaning work in the process as well. But we have to get clear on that idea that as much as we dislike the analogy that you are not your own. And Paul himself doesn't seem thrilled with this analogy, but he's getting, using it to get his point across. In verse 19, he say, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. He's saying, I'm... I'm not necessarily thrilled with this analogy, but I have got to get it through to you. So this is the best way to do it. So this is the analogy he's using. And there's another point here before we get too deep into the text. Notice how many options there are. There's just two. There's only two options. You're a slave to sin, you're a slave to righteousness. Just two. Now we're Americans, we love our freedom. We pride ourselves on it. We lift up the individual who bucks the system, um, the people, people who stand on their own two feet. We think freedom is doing what we want. If I want to sin, fine. If I want righteousness, fine. Either way, I'm free and I'm in charge and I'm in control because I'm making my own decision. That's freedom, we think. But that's not biblical freedom. In fact, as a starting point, there is no freedom. The hard part of this text is you have got to choose your master. You have two options. You are a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness. There's no third option of autonomy. There are two ways. And slaves to righteousness are people we call saints or worshipers of the true God or however you want to frame that. And slaves to sin would be idolaters and addicts to sin. And I know what came to your mind, though, is that, wait a minute, I know I'm no saint, but I'm certainly no idolater either. There must be a third way, but look at the text. There's not. I looked. I was looking for that loophole this week. See, if we're not compelled towards righteousness, then we need to think about those things we might be addicted to. We might have to think about those things that are idols in our lives. And when I say addicted to something, we may be thinking substances and, and whatnot is often how our mind goes, but there are others. Maybe your addiction is to look respectable at all cost. In other words, your idol is yourself. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your children. Your addiction is your idolatry if it's something that takes the central place of Jesus in your life. And so if we're not worshiping Jesus with all that we are, we're confronted with the possibility, and and if I dare say likelihood, that we're living as slaves to sin. That's terrifying. The fact that there's also two options is something for those of us who might be indecisive thinking, I'm not sure where I am. Well, not deciding is deciding. Not choosing is choosing. There are two ways, and Jesus' way is not the default position. That's what Romans 1 through 3 was all about, is that we are all on um, this track away from God. So by not choosing, you're choosing to stay on the track of sin. You're choosing 
for sin to be your master. So this is everything, friends. I know this is, this is heavy, especially when we're just hopping in and out of Romans for a week, but we are confronted just dead on. We need to choose our master. You say, well, how do we know? How can we be sure of where we stand? Well, Paul's clear. Who do you obey? So Jesus says, you need to give, and I say, I don't want to give. I want to buy this for myself. Who am I obeying? Jesus says, honor your parents, and you don't. Who are you obeying? That's not just for the kids either. That's for all of us. That doesn't, there's no time lapse on that or no statute of limitations. As long as you have a parent, you honor them. When Jesus says anger is like murder and you're holding a grudge or you're constantly angry at people in general, who are you obeying? Do we get the idea? I'm a little convicted, so I'd love to keep, I'd like to move on. So back to our original question. Why should I live in a God-honoring way when I'm saved by grace through faith? And the answer is you're a slave and you've only got two options. You need to choose your master, sin or righteousness. Sometimes it's a tough answer, question to answer because the ones who choose sin look like they're having the most fun, right? Well, one of the things Jesus says when people say they want to follow him in the Gospels, he says, hey, count the cost. And so what Paul's going to do here, what we're going to do is we're going to click through the rest of this passage and we're going to see this is where this slavery to sin will take you and this is where slavery to righteousness will take you. And then at the end of that, hopefully we can make an intelligent decision when it's all said and done. Verse 16, we've already seen that sin leads to death, obedience to righteousness. Um, we'll get to the solution of, of some practical implications in the next few verses. So we're going to skip 17 and 18 um, and just look at the, the costs of those two. And then we go to verse 19 here, the second part of it that we've already read. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. So slavery to sin leads to an ever-increasing spiral of sin and wickedness. You see this in, in the process of addiction and to anything, not just the big ones we focus on, but to anything. A life not focused on Jesus is going to lead to a spiral of meaninglessness at best that we are committing ourselves to pointless distractions and absolute wickedness at worst. The alternative is increasing holiness, that you are spiraling towards God. Let's keep going, verses 20 and 21. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. See, slave, being a slave to sin means you're free from righteousness. You can do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about doing the right thing. Unfortunately, many of you have done some pretty shameful and embarrassing things, haven't you? It hasn't worked out as you had hoped. And it's the way of death, and you know it, but you're determined to be in charge. You're determined to be the captain of your own fate, even if it means hitting iceberg after iceberg after iceberg. And what's happening when we're, we're caught in that train of thought where we keep doing our own thing and we keep reaping the negative consequences, that is, consequences of it is that our capacity to freely choose is being, it's shrinking. We're being hardened in the ways, in our own ways, of choosing ourselves as opposed to choosing God. We're building habits of sin and self-rule. 
you're doing what you want, but after a while, you will not have the capacity to want to do the right thing. That's slavery. The alternative, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. You're free from sin as you're a slave to God, and you enjoy becoming more like Jesus now and forevermore. And this is... To some of us, this is a silly thing to compare because it seems so obvious, but if, if you are someone who is dead set on doing your own thing, you don't want to become like Jesus. And so this is really a legitimate question for each one of us. The final contrast, verse 23, a well-known verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're a slave to sin, you get paid what you're, what you're owed, and that's death. You, you've gotten what you've deserved. You've gotten what you've lived for. Um, and there's no correlation to it if you notice on righteousness. There is no wage. You can't work your way out of debt as a slave to righteousness. It's the gift of God. We receive a gift. He's a generous God whose yoke of slavery then leads to freedom. Jesus himself said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So choose your master. That's what we have to, to choose from. Now, what do you think? If we, be, if we believe what God says here, the answer is pretty clear. But the question then is, I mean, the right answer is on the board in, in essence, but the question is, do you want it? That's the thing that we're all confronted with. This is, is not a question of learning new stuff today. It is the question of your will. Do you want the life God wants for you? Or do you want to do your own thing? You need to choose your master. Remember, not choosing is choosing. Some of you might still be objecting because you're thinking, hey, I've chosen Jesus and I'm trying, but I feel like a slave to sin still. I'm on a spiritual treadmill. I can't get anywhere. What's going on? Well, part of that is, is the reality of the Christian life. If you read 1 John 1, you, you get a glimpse of that. But we don't have to stay. We might live on the treadmill, but it's one of those that, that goes around and around, and it should be moving us forward towards Christ-likeness, um, spiraling upwards. If we get back to the middle of the text, the ones we skipped, I think we'll find some keys to what we can do about this. Once our will's engaged, we aren't going to do this unless we want it, but if we want it, then we will. Uh, this will be helpful. Paul recognizes first what, he's already, what God has already done in their lives. He recognizes that they've, that they've made a choice. Verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, one of the things Paul does in his letters is that he'll speak in the indicative and the imperative. I'm going to get nerdy on you for a minute. I'm sorry. But he often pairs them together. The indicative is just a statement of fact. It's, it's in, the, in the, the Greek language. It's the voice of the, the, the verb. And it's just the facts. And the fact is, you used to be slaves to sin, but you're not anymore. Well, How? Well, you've been entrusted to this teaching. Okay, that makes, I've heard entrusted and I've heard teaching, but it's phrased really strangely because usually teaching is something that's entrusted to us. But this says we've been entrusted to the teaching. And the idea here is that the, the story of the gospel has grabbed hold of our hearts and we are caught up in it. It is that it has mastered us, not that we've mastered it. It grabs hold of us. That's what's happened to him. They have been swept up into the life of God and in the story of God. 
And so the first thing we need to do here is understand, the, the application here is to remember who you are, that you are loved by God, that he sent his son to save you. He sent his spirit to live in you. He wants you to call him father, and he loves you with an everlasting love. The best thing you can do today is be captured by that truth, to be entrusted to that truth. That's the statement of fact for your life if you're in Christ. That's the indicative. That's the starting point. I mean, on Thanksgiving, that's enough. We have plenty to give thanks for just with that. But Paul continues on. Look at verse 19. Um, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural cells. We covered that. We actually read this whole verse, but we're going to read it again because the emphasis is important. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. The indicative's out there. This is what God has done. And now comes the imperative. Live like it. Offer your body for righteousness. Offer yourself to righteousness. Um, And that leads to holiness. In the most basic sense, it's kind of like being in jail. And your punishment has been paid. They open the door and they say, you can go home to your father. And at this point, you decide. And not going is just like saying, I think I'm good here. I've gotten used to it. It's comfortable by not embracing in the imperative, by not following up on what God asks us to do. That's what we're saying. No thanks, I'm good. We need to live our life. We need to walk out. We need to not live, go back to volume one. That's the prison. We need to live in volume two where he set us free. How do we do that? That's where offering your body to righteousness fits in. It's, it's in some ways very literal because um, we easily break our lives into spiritual and physical and the two don't come together and they should much more often. But that, that division, we don't see it in Scripture. We, at least not to the degree that we do it. But when we express praise, we don't just feel it on the inside. We sing it. Or we kneel. Or we raise our hands. Our bodies are involved in our transformation. Fasting in the Bible isn't just so you can lose a few pounds before the holidays or after the holidays. Fasting in the Bible takes away something good so that you learn to lean on the one who is better and you focus in on your relationship with him. Your body is something that God uses to draw you near him and transform you um, as a whole person. Community isn't just getting together and watching a game. Community is giving time and, and sharing an embodied life with other people in such a way that you're transformed to become more like Jesus. If we want to live out being entrusted to God's story, we need to spend time with his story in front of us. Again, not so much to master it, but so that it masters us, so we get caught up into it. We need to be people of prayer, to communicate with God, but also to be quiet and sit with him and let him communicate to us so that we don't just let our unexamined lives just hop back into the fray that leads to slavery, to sin, but so that he can speak to us and redirect us. Those are just basic blocking and tackling for your devotional life. Um, But it could be more than that, too. That's the most basic place to begin, but it also may mean making some very simple, but also very inconvenient and and difficult choices sometimes. A couple months ago, I shared with about um, my aunt, who is, we're seeing God do amazing things in her life. She's been an alcoholic for years. 
Um, but God has been giving her victory. She committed herself to him, and he is transforming her, and we rejoice in that, at how he's remaking her. And I was, I was, I had mentioned I was at my brother's wedding last summer, and I, I was doing that, and uh, you know, one of his groomsmen is a brewer, and so Brewmeister Cook, um, they had a bar there. And my aunt was, she came for the ceremony, and the ceremony and reception were in the same place. And, you know, after the ceremony, she kind of s- greeted people and whatnot. And then it was, I need to go now because I don't want to be tempted to take a drink. And I was so proud of her because I know she would have liked to visit. And I know she would have liked to reconnect with people and visited more. She didn't make a big deal of, it, deal of it. She just subtly slipped out because she didn't want to be tempted. It's a spiritual issue. Her idol was there. And she solved it in a very pedest- literally pedestrian way. She walked out. A very physical act, a very simple decision that kept her on the track, the path to righteousness and holiness that God has her on instead of dragging her back down to a place where she didn't she doesn't want to go. She's been there. She's seen death. She doesn't want to live there. He saved her and he's changed her. That's the indicative. And now she's on the path that God has set her on. That's the imperative. And she's continuing making choices to walk that way. So sometimes this is, certainly it's about prayer and scripture and all that stuff, but sometimes it is hard, practical decisions. If you go to places you shouldn't go after work, find a new route home. If you can't stay off certain sites, burn your computer. Figure something else out. But take the steps that will help you pursue the path of righteousness to be a slave to righteousness rather than a slave to sin. You've got choices to make. I've got choices to make. Who is your master? See, for a lot of us, the door is open, but we're unwilling to walk out. Our prison has become comfortable. And if it's not comfortable, at least it's manageable and at least it's known because I've been in counseling situations where people are at a decision point and they can't really imagine how God's way is better. Even as they're, they're coming for counseling because it's in a tough situation. And the idea that God has something better in the future just doesn't register. It doesn't make sense to them. And so often they choose slavery to sin and they regret it or they should because of the damage it's done to others let alone themselves. See, God has better for us. So choose your master. Christmas is coming. We're starting our Advent series next week, and it is a time to celebrate the Messiah who left the glory of heaven to dwell among us, to enter into our mess, to be submerged in our mess so that he could bring us out of it. Dwell on that this season. And not just on Sundays, but as you're shopping, as you're doing everything, remember that This isn't about the gifts. It isn't about the lights. It's about that God came to rescue me from the situation I'm in so that I could be a slave to him that leads to freedom or I could be, if not, I can be a slave to sin. In January, we're going to do a growth campaign to help us build some of these habits that will help us grow um, in obedience to righteousness and to live in light of it and and to grow in holiness and live in light of what God's done for us. But until then, celebrate Messiah. Get into his word. Make decisions that leads you on the path to righteousness rather than in slavery to sin. Choose your master every day. And after you've chosen your master, you need to remember who you are. You don't go on living like a beggar when you're a child of the king, and we are children of the king. He's our heavenly father. So let's live like it. Let's present our bodies to God for obedience.
and do it with those spiritual disciplines we engage in privately and those choices we make moment by moment for his glory. Remember the indicative and the imperative. We commit ourselves to him based on what he's done for us. Everything he did for us comes to focus at the cross. Now we usually do communion the first Sunday of each month, but this month we've delayed it because what a better thing to kick off the week of Thanksgiving than to give thanks for what God has done. Yeah.